I want to welcome you uh, to a very special service today. Matt mentioned just a moment ago that this is a time where we are ordaining Paul Folks to the gospel ministry. And I've already talked to several of you who've said, oh, that's neat. I've never seen something like this or never been a part of something like this. And so I thought it would be helpful to take just a little moment to talk about ordination and, and what we are doing today and why we're doing it. Um, Paul is seated over here. And this is the culmination of actually many years of study and preparation of prayer and trying to discern the will of the Lord. When you think of ordination for gospel ministry, you need to think simply in terms of setting apart. That's what ordaining really is. And if you were to read through some of the New Testament letters that were written by the Apostle Paul in particular, you would find him speaking to men like Timothy, who he considered to be a son in the faith, uh, about that day where the elders in Timothy's church laid their hands on him and set him apart for gospel ministry. And so Paul will say things like this, I put you in remembrance that you stir up the gift of God, which is in you by the putting on of my hands. For God has not given you the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Then he goes on in that same letter, a few verses below that, to say, This charge I commit to you, my son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on you, prophecies that were given over you, that by them you might war a good warfare. Or 1 Timothy 4, verse 14, he says again, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So this is a weighty moment. But it's not just something that the elders of this church do. It's actually something that Gospel Hope Church, as an assembly, participates in. And we're going to give you the opportunity toward the end of the service to affirm some things together and to add your blessing uh, to Paul and to his wife, Laura, here, who's in a very essential part of Paul's ministry. So we're going to, we're still, as Matt said, it's still all about the Lord Jesus Christ today. That's why we're going to sing hymns to him and about him. We're going to read scriptures uh, that tell us more about the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we'll worship the Lord with our, our gifts and offerings as we always do in these services. But we're going to do something a little special toward the end. And that is to lay hands on Paul and formally set him apart for gospel ministry. So it's a special day for us. I do want to just also take a moment here at the outset uh, while we are paused to introduce some, some very special people to you that have come to be with us. Paul's parents are with us, Steve and Judy Folks, and this is obviously a really special thing for them as Paul's parents. And uh, Paul's dad, Steve, has been a pastor for many, many years. Uh, so he kind of carries a dual role, not just as father, but also as a minister of the gospel uh, who lays his hands on his son. And I know this is a really special thing uh, for them. And then I also want to acknowledge two pastors who've come from Paul's sending church back in Ohio, uh, Patrick Odell and John Kasbaum. Did I pronounce that correctly? Good. I've been hopeful that I would, I would get that correct. But Patrick and John have made the trip out and spent the weekend uh, with us. Yesterday morning, a group of us met for almost four hours when it was all said and done to examine him and ask Paul a whole bunch of questions about the Bible and doctrine and 
the nature of ministry, and that was really the culmination of study. And we're grateful for all who've participated. And I just wanted to welcome these folks in particular. Patrick is actually going to preach a, a, a short message, and I'll also preach a second message here uh, for Paul's encouragement, but also for you as a church, just to put some, th some things in perspective. And we are so grateful uh, that Patrick can serve our congregation in this way today and, and lead us into the Word. So that's a little overview of where we're headed. And uh, it's with great joy. It's such great joy for us to have this privilege today. And I hope it will be meaningful for you all as well. Let's pray together and ask for God's blessing. Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ, we come recognizing that your grace and mercy have been mightily demonstrated to us through your Son. And it's because of the mercy of Christ that we have the assurance that our sins are forgiven, that our eternal life is secure, that we have been made the, the children of the Most High God, adopted as full heirs with Jesus. There are many blessings that come to us through our Savior, but this morning we ask for your blessing that through the word as it is read and preached through these hymns and spiritual songs that we're singing, that the truths concerning Jesus Christ would be transformational for us. We also ask that it would be a day of blessing for Paul and Laura, a culmination and also a beginning for them. Thank you for the work that has been put into uh, this ordination. Thank you for the hope of a future that you will guide and bless and ministry that you will continue to lead Paul through and into. And as a church family, we gather in your name that we might be blessed and that we might be a blessing. So come now, Lord Jesus, and help us, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we ask these things. Amen. Good morning. Turn in your Bibles, please, with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Pastor Danny has already mentioned to us today that Paul, in writing to Timothy many times, reminded him of his calling and the laying on of hands. In chapter 1, as Paul begins, he himself speaks of his own calling in verses 12 through 17, and that's what I would like to read with you this morning. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Steve, and how grateful we are for the word of God. Amen. Amen. 
and the opportunity to be together today and to study it together as well. I want to say thank you to each and every one of you for this opportunity, but especially to Paul and to Pastor Danny and the staff here uh, for the opportunity just to be a part of this very, very service, special service and this very, very special weekend. It was great to, uh, if you've never been in an ordination council, it was great to grill and drill a fellow, fellow beloved, uh, beloved brother in Christ and servant of the Lord. At times, I've been at ordination councils where it felt more like an inquisition than it did an inquiry, and uh, yesterday's was not an inquisition, so it was good, and he did a great, great job. So thank you for the opportunity to be here uh, as the pastor of his sending church back in Elyria, Ohio. And so I speak on behalf of First Baptist Church of Elyria, Ohio as well, um, just how thrilled we are with what God has done in and through Paul and Laura and what God is going to do in and through Paul and Laura as well. Thank you especially, Pastor Danny, for allowing me to step into your pulpit here. You did notice he said that I'm going to preach a brief sermon. Did you, did you catch that? And then he said, he, in reference to me, that is, that he, Pastor Odell's going to preach a brief sermon, and then he said, then he's going to preach a sermon. I, I noticed that. I noticed that, brother. And uh, this is your pulpit, so you go right ahead and you preach, and I'll try to stick to the, the brief, brief sermon, because I'm guessing that Pastor Danny and I kind of have the same issue with, with longer sermons? Does he, does he ever preach a little bit longer sermons? Never. Never, ever, 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 ever? I don't believe you. All right. <laughs> Take your Bible and turn, if you would, with me to uh, Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Typically, in, in uh, ordination services, there are typically two messages. Uh, one that is designed to be a charge to the candidate, to the person who's being ordained, and one that is designed to be a, a charge or a sermon to the congregation, to the church. And so I've been asked to give the, the, the sermon, the, the charge to the congregation. And this morning as we turn to Acts chapter 13, I want to ask you kind of a unique, a little bit different kind of question in reference to this church. The question is this, if this church was a ship, what kind would it be? If this church was a ship, what kind would it be? Or let me restate that a little bit. If this church was a ship, what kind should it be? What kind should it be? J.D. Greer, in his book, Gaining by Losing, uses a beautiful metaphor in reference to the church in terms of what a lot of churches are or what a lot of churches want to be or even what a lot of people who sit in the pew want their church to be versus what a biblical church ought to be. And he proposes three different models of, of potential answers to that question. What kind of ship would this church be? And what kind of ship should this church be? The three models are these. The first one is the luxury cruise liner. In that there are a lot of Christians that when they think of a church, they think of it in terms of it being just that, a luxury cruise liner. Think about it. I've never been on a cruise, but some of you have been on a cruise. I mean, everything under the sun kind of is there in terms of things that you can enjoy. And it's kind of really all about you. It's kind of all about your satisfaction and just trying to make you happy for the duration of the time that you're on the cruise. And a lot of people think about that in terms of their church, that it ought to have every ministry under the sun that ministers to every part of the family, and it ought to have a sports ministry, it ought to have a youth ministry, it ought to have a nursery, it ought to have comfortable seating, it ought to have exercise classes, social events, really good but short messages, and really good feel-good music, and so on and so forth, that kind of thing. He says this in reference to the cruise liner type of church, if they're, in reference specifically to the people attending, if their church ever ceases to meet their preferences... Well, there are plenty of other cruise ships in the harbor. And so a lot of times people bounce from cruise ship to cruise ship kind of church when, when their needs aren't supposedly being met. The other example that he gives is that 
There are churches that think of themselves more as battleships, and maybe the people in the church think of the church as a battleship. A battleship is a church that is made for mission, and its success is determined by how loudly and how dramatically it fights the battles. And maybe it has even picked specific battles that it wants to fight in society and all the ills of the world and things like that that it's taking shots at constantly. Take a shot at this and take a shot at that and take a shot at this. And he goes on to describe that church in this way. The role of church members is to pay the pastors, to find the targets, and to fire the guns every week as they gather to watch. They see the program services and ministries of the church as their primary instruments of mission. That's a battleship kind of ship. The third one, though, that he presents in this book, Gaining by Losing, is that of an aircraft carrier. Think about the difference between that and the first two. Where does the battle occur in relationship to an aircraft carrier? Where had the battle better occur? The point of an aircraft carrier is not that the battle occurs there at the aircraft carrier, because if the battle occurs there at the aircraft carrier, what happens? That ship is sunk. And so the intent of an aircraft carrier is actually to stay back a ways and then send all of the planes out on missions to the raids and to the attacks and to take the battle to, to where it belongs, not here in the church, not inside the four walls, but out into the world around. He goes on to describe that in terms of a church that launches people into the battlefield and takes the gospel into the neighborhoods, takes the gospel into workplaces, social environments, families, maybe even takes the gospel across town or across the planet. It's that type of a church. It's an aircraft carrier. I would propose to you this morning that's the biblical model. That that's the biblical model. After all, what did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 16 about building his, his church? Matthew 16, 18. He said that the gates of what? Of hell will not prevail against it. And of course, a gate is a defensive type of thing. We sometimes think it's the other way around, but the, the idea of that text is that we are, we are bombarding the gates of hell with the gospel of Jesus Christ so that people are released from that. And a church that's really truly on mission ought to be sending people out into the world with the gospel, reaching people for Jesus Christ. An aircraft carrier sending people, both people like Paul and Laura, those that are called of God to be pastor and wife, as well as people that sit in the pews that see their mission as taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that so desperately needs it. And so it's far too easy for a church to become a cruise liner because that's what some people want. It's far too easy for a church to become a battleship because people want their pastor to take pot shots at the world. When in reality, God wants this church to be an aircraft carrier and to mentor people for ministry that it will send out, yes, to the neighborhoods around here, but also across this city and across the world. And this morning, I want you to see a beautiful example of that. A beautiful example of a church that was mentoring many for ministry because that's what God wants for this church, to mentor many for ministry. Look at what it says here. In Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now in the church, that's significant, now in the church that was at Antioch, there was certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, and they ministered to the Lord and fasted, 
And the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. This morning I want us to see that God wants this church to mentor many for ministry. And to follow this New Testament pattern. And if that's the case, how is it that this church will do that? How is it that every church will do that? This church, God would want this church to be a church that, that places a premium on three different things. Notice those quickly with me. Three different things. The first one is this church ought to place a premium on serving for the Lord. People, as a church as a whole, that really truly are engaged in ministry. They don't just sit in a pew, but are engaged in serving the Lord. That's what happened here in the Antioch church. It says, now in the church, verse 1, there was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers. And then it gives a list of all these different individuals that are, that are preaching and teaching the Word of God, that are ministering. Notice very quickly, three different things here in relationship to serving for the Lord. First is the place. It happens in the church. It's not the role of the Bible college. It's not the role of the seminary or even the mission board. It's the role of the local church. And so their place was in the local church. It's the local church's job to enlist and to equip and to send people out into ministry. Notice, secondly, their positions. They were prophets and teachers. They were actively teaching the Word of God. And so God chooses those who are already busy serving. God chooses those who are already busy serving. Their place, their positions, but then thirdly, notice that their passion, their passion is this, that as they ministered, it's a beautiful word actually that, that is used there in relationship to ministry. The word ministered there actually means that they served as an act of active worship. Isn't that a beautiful thought? In other words, their ministry was not something mundane. Their ministry was not something that they had to do. It was not a matter of mere obligation. It was a matter of adoration. Not obligation, but adoration. They ministered to the Lord. They served as an act of worship. And that is what God, of course, wants for each and every one of us. And so God chooses for further ministry those who are already doing ministry, is what this passage of Scripture is teaching. And this has been true of Paul and Laura, that since they were young people, Laura, the church she grew up in, Paul, our church where he grew up, have been active in ministry and have been more and more engaged as time has gone on in, in ministry. And that's been a part of their, their call, is actively serving within a local church and First Baptist Church of Elyria, Ohio, recognized that call when he was a young person. And as a result of even just coming out here and on missions trips, you probably know some of that story as a teenager in high school from our church coming out here and, and, and ministering in this church and how God burdened their hearts for Utah and for, for bringing the gospel here. And so they have set that a, a great example of someone who has just gotten involved in ministry and evidenced the call. And so Paul fits this church that, that puts a premium on, premium on serving for the Lord, he fits that, but God wants that for all of us. God wants all of us to be actively serving in the local church. And so this church, God wants this church to be a church that places a premium on serving for the Lord. Secondly, God wants this church to be a church that places a premium on praying to the Lord. Praying to the Lord. Notice what it goes on to say in, in the text here in relationship to that. In verse 2, it says, and they ministered to the Lord and fasted. Later on in the passage, you'll see it again in verse 8 or verse 3 when it says this, then having fasted and prayed. And so not only should Gospel Hope Church place a premium on serving for the Lord, but it ought to, ought to also place a premium on praying to the Lord. And specifically here, it uses the, the, the idea of fasting. 
Uh, Fasting is depriving yourself of food to dedicate yourself to prayer. Depriving yourself of food to dedicate yourself to prayer. And I think it's important for us to understand what the Scripture teaches about fasting and even the practices of the day in that in the first century, Jews were in the habit of twice a week. That was just a regular part of their routine was fasting. And yet as you read the New Testament, there's no specific mandate in the New Testament that says thou shalt fast. But you see it practiced throughout the New Testament. Even Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 said this. He said, when you fast. And so he presumed that people who were serious about prayer would give up food so that they could focus with a greater sense of intensity on prayer. And that's what happened here in the church in Antioch. They're fasting. They're they're praying. People who are serious about prayer fast and notice it was it was both the combination of the leaders of the church as well as the church itself verses one and two it's the leaders but later on in verse three when it talks about them fasting and praying it's the whole church and so this isn't something just for the preachers this is something for all of us god calls people who are serious about prayer and god calls people from churches that are serious about prayer what do you think they prayed by the way What do you think they prayed? I I can't help but think that in relationship to this context, and in relationship to the words of Jesus, that they prayed what Jesus said in Matthew 9.38, when he said this, Pray, therefore, the Lord of the what? Of the harvest. That he would send out laborers into the harvest field. I can't help but think that because that was the result of this, that that was their prayer, that they were fasting, that they were praying and asking God to call more to take the gospel to places that so desperately needed it. What are the people of this church passionately praying about? Uh, What a church is passionately praying about says a lot about that church. You know, if I were to slip into a community group, what's that community group praying about? Or another gathering of other people what, what, is, what, are the, what are the big things? What are the things that you're just calling out to God to do? I hope that one of those big things that you're calling out to God to do is to send forth more laborers into the harvest field of this valley and across the planet. I'm afraid, though, that in a lot of our churches, people pray more to the Lord of the hospital than they do the Lord of the harvest. You know what I mean by that? In other words, as I listen to even my own people pray at times, it seems like the top of the list is always people that have physical needs. And that's not to minimize us praying for physical needs. We ought to be praying for physical needs. But if that's the sum and substance, and that's the top of the list, and that's the most important stuff, instead of souls, instead of gospel laborers, something is out of balance. And that God wants us to pray the Lord of the harvest, not just the Lord of the hospital. And if we were so, so urgent about people getting out of, out of hell as we are about people getting out of the hospital, that's the way it ought to be in our churches. And so what are you pre- passionately praying about individually? What are you passionately praying about corporately as a church? I hope it's the, the Lord of the harvest would send forth more laborers into his harvest field. If, if gospel Hope Church stops praying, the Lord of the harvest. Paul could be the last pastor or missionary called from this church. So let's not expect there to be more if we're not praying. And so God wants this church to be a church that, where people are serving for the Lord. There's a premium on serving for the Lord. There's a premium on praying 
to the Lord, but then finally there's a premium on a calling from the Lord. A calling from the Lord. And that's what is then recognized here. You you see it in verses 2 and 3. As they ministered, the Holy Spirit said, verse 2, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul. We will later know, you you will later know in the book of Acts that Saul becomes the Apostle Paul. Separate those two men to the work for which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Notice quickly just three things in relationship to this calling from the Lord. First of all, there's a separation. That's what the text says, that that they were to separate them. It's an interesting word that's used in the original. It means to mark a boundary around. It's almost like to to draw this circle around this individual and and say, God, we're recognizing that God has his hand on this individual in a very unique and special way and that this is his calling. He can't do anything other than gospel ministry. And so the separation involves marking this boundary. And Paul would later reflect on his own calling in passages like Romans 1.1 where he said, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. That's the same term that is used there in Romans 1.1. The same term is used in Galatians 1.15 when Paul said this, God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through His grace. And so this, this separation is a recognition of the call of God. There's also a support. The text goes on to say that they laid hands on them, and that will happen this morning. Laying on of hands is a demonstration of support, but it's also symbolic of the hand of God, that God's hand is on Paul and others that will be separated to the gospel ministry, that, that, that the Lord's hand of blessing is on him, and we are recognizing that call as we lay on hands and pray over him. And so it's a matter of separation, it's a matter of support, it's also then a matter, matter of sending. As verse 3 goes on to say, and then verse 4 talks about it more, but verse 3 says, they, they sent them away. The church acted upon that which God had already done to send them away. And of course, I think you as a church know the hopes are for, for the folks to be able to someday step aside from this church and plant another church in, in the area and be sent away officially by this church to do that. And what a thrilling day that will be when God does that very, very thing. And so that's the biblical model. The biblical model of a church that doesn't want to just keep everybody here and have a good time like a cruise ship. The biblical model that's, uh, of a church that's not just taking pot shots about different issues and paying the pastors to do it. A biblical model of an aircraft carrier that's sending its people out into the world. Those who are called of God as pastors and missionaries, but also you folks, every one of us who want to take the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so may this church be a, a church that places a premium on serving for the Lord, praying to the Lord, and then recognizing a calling from the Lord. And may Paul and Laura be the first of many, the first of many, many, that God will do that in their lives and use them in great ways. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this church and what you're doing here and what you want to do here. And not just here, but what you want to do in every church that is focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray for your work in every one of our lives that we would be committed to the fulfillment of this great commission. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm thankful that our hope rests in Jesus. And I'm also thankful at these occasions that that, um, God has not called any of us to be original that as pastors, we don't have to come up with something profound to say. 
um, that Jesus has spoken. We are not waiting for some man to come speak to us. God has something to say this morning. And it's all wrapped up in his word, the Bible. 2 Timothy 3, God says to us as pastors, he says directly to you, Paul, this morning, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, fully equipped for every good work. So I charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, it will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, Fulfill your ministry. Thank you, Matt. Although we're turning our attention uh, specifically to Paul with this word of exhortation, I just want to encourage each of you to listen carefully to the word of God. Because there are implications for us as a church family, and there are implications for us individually. And so I would ask you, just heed the word of God as you hear it read and preached a little further. How thankful we are to share this day with you, Paul. You have had the encouragement of many people along the way. And I was thinking yesterday as we listened to your testimony and then even to your own father share a little bit at the end of that examination period, you know, it was your parents who first told you of Jesus Christ. God blessed you in that he brought you into this world, into a home, where Christ was set before you, and he was taught, his word was read, your parents prayed over you, and I was also intrigued to learn from your father that you were a surprise baby. Uh, so maybe from their perspective, uh, but not to the Lord. The Lord knew you well before you were born, before he formed you in your mother's womb, as Jeremiah uh, speaks of. It was your pastors who discipled you, and encouraged you in this most holy faith, as the Apostle Paul describes it. They trained you and gave you opportunities to fan into flame this gift that God had created in you long ago. And it rejoiced all of our hearts to hear you speak of how under their oversight, you began to see God's call and recognize it, and they were encouraging it and nurturing it. So with family, with pastors, with friends, uh, around you, this call to gospel ministry became clearer and more compelling, and you pursued training and education in college and even seminary beyond in order that you might exercise gospel ministry. I was thinking what a blessing it is too, and just for the encouragement of gospel hope, we've already told you that this summer 
there are going to be a number of uh, young people joining us, some high schoolers, some college-age students who are coming, two separate weeks that we have set apart uh, for their participation with us. Well, it was not only Paul who came with his, his youth group, uh, but John, you were a part of that. And I think if I understand this correctly from what you guys said, Paul, you were 10th grader at that time, and John, you were 11th grader. And you guys came out for a week, probably very similar to what we're going to do with some young people this summer. And, and Paul's dad, Steve, was saying yesterday, when Paul came home from that trip, he said, I know where I'm supposed to go, and I know what I'm supposed to do. And he set his heart and his sight on Utah, even as a 10th grader. And years later, God brought them out here. And that was about, what, six years ago that you actually moved here and uh, endeavored to plant a church in Harriman, which didn't go quite the way they had planned. But we know God is in all of those things, and we're happy to have them here with us at Gospel Hope for a little while, but we pray not a long time. And we're praying as a church family that God will assemble another team of, of qualified pastors who could either plant a church or maybe revitalize something as we've been doing here uh, in this setting. So I, I say all of that not just so you'll know some history, but that you'll understand the significance of these words of Paul that he continues to speak into the heart and soul of this younger man that he loves very dearly. Now, we believe, based on what we understand from the Scriptures and then even just a little, little pieces of church history as we still have them, that Timothy was the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And Paul had placed him there and asked him to consider serving in that setting. And Ephesus was a tough town. It was a place full of idolatry. It was a place where the, the challenges of, of, of the economy and the political currents of that day made it exceedingly difficult for Timothy. But it was a place of God's appointment. And while we do not know all of the details that are yet to be in the future for Paul, we are sure that these words are fitting for you. And I'm also sure, Laura, that they are fitting for you. You are that perfectly corresponding one, as Genesis 2 describes Eve when God created her for Adam. You are the mate that God has chosen to help this man pursue the will of God. And you've been doing that. It's clear to all of us who know you that you not only happily assume that role, uh, but you seek to be an encouragement to Paul. And we pray that God will give you that grace for all the days that lie ahead. And Paul, you need to recognize that she is a gift of God and uh, a partner. Don't ever take her for granted, even though that will be uh, one of the temptations you will face. So, Laura, God bless you for what you have already shouldered and for what lies ahead that the two of you together will shoulder. Now, look with me again at the text. If your Bibles are still open, first to, or 2 Timothy 4, uh, Matt read a portion of chapter 3, but that helps put this particular word in its context. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. It's a strong word, a simple word. Paul, it is going to be the substance of your ministry. The famous, famous Baptist preacher from 150 years ago or so, Charles Spurgeon, once wrote to his ministerial students, preach Christ always and evermore. 
He is the whole gospel. His person, his offices, his work must be our one great all-comprehending theme. And so this verse begins to make plain the task of preaching the word. Preach the whole word, the whole counsel of God. Because in the whole counsel of God is found the whole person of Christ. Paul's exhortation to Timothy is to communicate that word. It's easy to think of it in the formal context of a service like this, where Patrick preaches and then I preach, and that is part of it, but there is more to it. It is the public announcement of this good news concerning Jesus Christ. Sometimes you will do it in private conversations, just one-on-one. Other times you will stand in an assembly like this, but always the substance of your pastoral message must be His Word. We are not setting you apart for ministry where you would preach or teach your opinions or your ideas or what you think would make for encouraging words, but you must be a man of this word. And I want you to notice some things from this text. If you go back into chapter 3, and and as Paul was reminding Timothy of this word that he's known from his youth, and you've known the same word, look at verse 15. It is able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, this word is sacred, as Paul refers to it in this passage, verse 15, the sacred writings. It is sacred in the first place because of its divine content. The content of God's revelation may be summarized in this one phrase, one breath, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Luke 24, verse 27, tells us that after the resurrection, Jesus was on the road with a couple of disciples who were still trying to process all that had happened. And it's a remarkable moment because they don't recognize Jesus as the resurrected one at that moment. But he begins to explain to them and expound, as Luke writes. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And it's their testimony uh, later on that Luke records for us that while Jesus was doing that, their hearts were on fire. And they said, didn't our hearts burn within us while he expounded those things? And I think that is what every preacher of the gospel must aspire to, to so expound the word of God that the hearers would be set aflame. Jesus is life for us. The word is sacred because of its divine content. It's also sacred because of its divine origin. Look at verse 16 of chapter 3. It's given by inspiration of God. Now, not just for Paul, but I I want all of you to think about this for a moment. The, The text that you hold in your hands, and I would assume the vast majority of you are reading an English translation, and and how thankful we are for translators. But God breathed out his word so that ordinary people like us might know his mind, his thoughts, his heart, his plans, his purposes, his character, his attributes. It is the revelation of God himself. And though there are 40 authors and 66 books, uh, this one book that we refer to as the Bible compiled over 1,500 years. And you think of the continuity of the message and the continuity of the truths that are revealed. It could only be breathed out by one author ultimately. And that's what Paul said. It is the God-breathed word. So why would you inject Paul's opinion? I mean Paul Folks, the Apostle Paul. We want to know what he thinks. (laughs) Why would it ever be Patrick's opinion or Danny's opinion or whoever stands and preaches or teaches? Oh, how we need this breathed out word of God. 
Now, you will employ your own words, your own vocabulary, even your own understanding, but you must always preach under the reality and even submission to the truth that this is God's word. So you're not being ordained today in order that you might give your opinion on particular matters, that you might share your thoughts, even though you're a man who has many good thoughts and opinions. But we are setting you apart for gospel ministry, that you might be a messenger who faithfully proclaims as the prophets of old, as the apostles who took up this call of Jesus Christ in that first century and with joy and soberness said, thus saith the Lord. So it's sacred because of its divine origin. It's also sacred because of its divine purpose. Look at verse 15 again. It's able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 4, Paul goes further, and after saying, preach the word, verse 2, be ready in season, out of season, then he says, uh, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. All of these things have to do with the purpose that God has given his word. Part of that is included at the end of chapter 3. It has reference to you, that you may be perfectly equipped for every good work. So, Being a man of the word has bearing on the effectiveness of your ministry, but you're also going to be ministering the word in order that God would use it as the means of change for people. Some of us are going to sit under your ministry, and we will need to hear the word of God preached and taught in order that we might change. And someone might say, well, couldn't we change on our own? What if we just read the Bible for ourselves? Well, that's one way to do it, but God is also designed, purposed, ordained, if you will, that we submit ourselves even to moments like this where we open the word together and a teacher, a messenger of God says, thus saith the Lord, and we are changed by this process. So this is a good thing when we see a man being trained and equipped and qualified and raised up as a messenger. Our growth hangs on this moment to some extent. So Paul proclaimed Christ. Because only by faith in him does a person gain eternal life. Only by faith in him do we grow in his likeness. So proclaim Jesus, whether in personal or private conversations, as you have the opportunity to preach, to teach, to evangelize, to disciple, proclaim Christ. He is the substance of your pastoral message. But then Paul says, we go back to the text, be ready in season and out of season, verse 2. So while, on the one hand, Christ is the substance of your pastoral message, persistence needs to be the hallmark of your pastoral ministry. And I'm so glad you've already demonstrated that, because those five years in Harriman seeking to start a church were not easy. And humanly speaking, it wasn't even successful. But I know from God's vantage point, it was and will be. And there's going to be eternal fruit that is born from those challenging years. So you've demonstrated already that you are a man of of persistence and steadfastness and faithfulness. But look at the text again, because he's saying to you, preach the word despite the challenging circumstances, in season and out of season. Those, Those terms seem to have reference to those moments where it's favorable and where it's unfavorable. And every preacher of the gospel faces 
these moments. Let me give you some examples of unfavorable conditions or an out-of-season moment. Noah would be the first preacher of righteousness who comes to mind because he preached for a hundred years while he built an ark, and how ridiculous that must have seemed in the middle of nowhere. It wasn't even a coastal city, and he's fabricating this enormous ship. Um, and I'm sure that people walked by and just shook their heads, and they mocked him and made fun of him. But while he was building that boat that would have been the salvation for anyone who came by faith, he was preaching the gospel, preaching, preaching, preaching. And in the end, it was only his family who was spared. It was an out-of-season preaching ministry. Jeremiah would be another example preached faithfully for his lifetime, gave the written word of God, and yet the nation refused him. He suffered greatly. It was out of season. And you know, the Gospels in the New Testament record for us that even Jesus came to his own, and his own received him not. And there's an aspect of his ministry that we could say it was out of season. To be rejected by those that were his blood Ken, rejected by those who should have seen this is the Messiah. It was out of season. But then you have some remarkable stories included in the scriptures. It's what every preacher of the gospel hopes for. Jonah would be one of the first examples. He preached even with a less than perfect heart and attitude. And the whole city of Nineveh apparently repented and was converted. What an astonishing moment. It's also a reminder that God's not looking for perfect preachers, but he is looking for faithful preachers. Peter, who only a few weeks before had denied any association with Christ, even invoked a divine curse upon himself, and yet was so graciously restored by Christ after the resurrection and then filled with the Holy Spirit so that at Pentecost he preached and 3,000 people were converted in one day. That's in season. Paul and Barnabas, Patrick referred to them in, in Acts 13, but if you continue reading into Acts 14, as they assumed that ministry for which they'd been set apart, Acts 14.1 says that those men spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Gentiles believed. It was in season. What a privilege to preach the word at that moment. If you go back to 2 Timothy 4 and you look at verse 3, as Matt read earlier, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears. What a, what a colorful and fascinating phrase that is. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And Paul, you must preach the word despite the cultural passions. There are people in assemblies like this, there are entire groups of people who decide we want this kind of preaching, we want it delivered in this way, and we want these to be the topics because it just makes us feel good. But you do not take your cues as a preacher uh, from that constituency. You don't do ministry by the polls. You get in the book and you say, God, what have you said? What have you made clear? And you must do all this with persistence. And here's the last thought for you. Personal change is the objective of your pastoral ministry. It's interesting some, some of the terminology that Paul uses here as he speaks to Timothy. And, and some of them have to do with a method of personal growth. And that can be captured in these words, reprove, reprove 
rebuke, exhort. To reprove means that you actually show a person his fault. That's not comfortable always, but we do it on the authority of God's word. So again, you're not standing there saying, I think you have a problem. But we hold up the word of God as a mirror and say, can you look at that? And how does your life compare to what God says? And we reprove. Sometimes we rebuke, which means to warn in order to prevent an action from bringing harm. You've experienced this personally. Sometimes you know that your sin never seems as dangerous or as deadly in its consequences at the moment you're being tempted. But when, a, when an individual is struggling with sin, they, they, they excuse it, they minimize it. Uh, sometimes they're just absolutely blind to it. But that's where God positions people out of love to rebuke and say, stop. You're going to destroy yourself. You're going to destroy your family. You're going to destroy a church. Reprove and rebuke, and then finally to exhort. And that's a word that actually speaks of encouraging or consoling. And that's one of the sweet opportunities of of pastoral ministry, to come alongside those and say, you know, God loves you, and he will carry you through this. That word of exhortation that encourages them to be faithful in what God has called them to do. It comes in many forms, but these are the means that God uses in your life as a pastor to bring about change. And then he tells us how we do it, complete patience or long-suffering. That has to do with just remaining under. I think most of us who know you, we have the impression that you're just a pretty patient, you know, steady guy. You've been humble enough to say, I struggle with controlling my anger at some moments in certain situations. But your wife came back and said, Probably not as bad as he says it is. So while some of that may be in your nature, there are going to be moments, though, that you don't have it within yourself, and you have to ask God to give you that patience. And then finally, he says doctrine. And really, he's bringing it full circle again. It's the teaching that centers in Jesus. It's about him. It's from him. It moves us to him. Your pastoral ministry must be conducted with a view of personal change. There's so much more in the pastoral epistles that I would commend to you, but if you would just set your heart on these things, and as Paul even says to Timothy at the end of verse 5, fulfill your ministry, fulfill your ministry. It's going gonna, it's gonna to have its own unique design and shape, and even your personality is part of what God has wisely positioned for this thing ahead of you. But if you do it in faithfulness, what it will result in is more followers of Jesus. I love the words of a pastor who lived about 150 years ago, J.C. Ryle, and he was writing about one of the great early American evangelists, George Whitfield. And listen to what he says about Whitfield. The materials for forming a correct opinion about such a man as Whitfield are very scanty. He wrote no book for the millions. No worldwide fame like Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. He headed no crusade against an apostate church with a nation at his back and princes on his side like Martin Luther. He founded no religious denomination which pinned its faith on his writings and carefully embalmed his best acts and words like John Wesley. There are Lutherans and there are Wesleyans in the present day, but there are no Whitfieldites. No, the greatest evangelist of the 18th century was a simple, guileless man who lived for one thing only, and that was 
to preach Christ. If he did that, he cared for nothing else. So we do not ordain you to start your own group. We hope at the end of your life there will not be folk sites. It sounds funny to us right now, but some do preach to create a following. Preach, serve, love, and minister that people may know Jesus.